Well, we are returning to our study in Galatians. We have been studying the fruit of the Spirit now for the last couple of months. And uh, we walked through each one, one by one. And now we're going to finish out the letter. Not today, but over the course of the next few weeks. Oh, by the way, children, you can be dismissed to your class in the back. I was doing so well. Hadn't forgotten in a while. Even pastors need grace. But we're going to be back in Galatians this morning. I'm excited to finish up the letter. I was at a conference these last couple of days down in South Fort Worth, and the building that the conference was meeting in, uh, it was an amazing building. It was pristine and clean. Everything was orderly. Everything was in its place. The colors all matched. Everything was modern. The technology was wonderful. And as I sat and looked at this building, I thought, isn't this often how we want to portray our churches? Now, I'm not saying that that was the intention behind this building or why they built it. I have no problem with, with buildings. I have no problem with nice buildings. But oftentimes, I think that we think in order for the church to be attractive to the world, our church needs to look like that. Everything in place, everything in order, the very best of everything, when in reality, the church looks very different than that. That if you get behind closed doors and you get into the, the warp and the wolf of our lives, you find out that our lives are very much different than that, that they're anything but orderly, they're anything but put together, they're anything but clean in every sense, that they're messy. Oftentimes I think too, as churches, we can be so wrapped up in the presentation that we give of who we are, that we can become so consumed perhaps with building our own brands and building up our own numbers and presenting an attractive package to a world that's already, by its very nature, consumeristic. That we begin to see the weaknesses and the sins of others as interruptions to that ministry. That we begin to see, perhaps, broken marriages and of brothers and sisters battling addictions and of those who struggle with depression and doubt and fear and anxiety, those who would who would have the audacity to come into our lives and slow us down as we are en route to building our own little kingdoms. And we view those interruptions to ministry as something that's keeping us from true ministry. That if we could just get our church a little neater, a little cleaner, a little bit more put together, then we can get to the real work of ministry. I fear that way too many churches think that way about ministry. But what we're going to see in Galatians chapter 6 is that all of those interruptions of brothers and sisters who are perhaps caught in sin and the attention that they get from their fellow brothers and sisters for the gospel's sake, we find that's not interruption to ministry. That's not something to recover from so that you can get to the better parts of ministry. What we find in Galatians 6 is that is at the very heart of gospel ministry. That while we may gather in really nice buildings, 
multi-million dollar complexes where everything is in place and orderly, what we find is that our lives are mostly held together by duct tape, that our lives have stress cracks all over them, that the remaining stains of sin are still in our ceiling tiles, so to speak. And we go, this is more of an accurate picture of what it looks like to be a sinner walking with fellow sinners in the world than often what we want to portray. And I fear, as so many churches have been much more concerned with building brands than building up believers, that we have only increased what, what I've come to see is I've talked to a number of you and a number of others through the years as what's referred to as church burn. This idea that I made myself vulnerable, I put myself in the care of the church and the church neglected me, that the church didn't care. They cared for a moment, but they didn't endure with me. Eventually I found myself marginalized, just kind of out on the fringes, slipping through the cracks. I don't know that I can trust the church again. Well, surely the church is not perfect. There's no perfect church. But I think what we see in Galatians chapter 6 is a recipe, a remedy, for how the law of Christ aims to shape the church in such a way that it would, that it would on the one hand, be okay to be a sinner. Not okay with sin, but okay to be a sinner. And of brothers and sisters who would orient their lives in such a way to bear the heavy burdens of those who are caught in sin. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. The book of Galatians. It's in the New Testament. If you're not used to handling your Bible, the Bible's broken up into two uh, testament, so to speak, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament takes up the last third of your Bible. And if you go about halfway into the New Testament, you should find the book of Galatians. Go past Romans and First and Second Corinthians. If you end up hitting Thessalonians or Timothy or Hebrews or Revelation, you've gone too far. Go back to your left. You'll find Galatians right there. One of Paul's epistles. Galatians chapter 6. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 5 this morning. And as I read, I want you to keep this big idea in mind. This is essentially my sermon in a sentence. Okay, this is what this text is all about. And insofar as we're able, we want to always try to make the point of the passage the point of the message. And so here is the point of the passage. That spirit-filled churches reflect Christ by restoring sinners and bearing their burdens. Spirit-filled churches reflect Christ by restoring sinners and bearing their burdens. Just look at this beginning in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, well, then he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. May God in his grace write it on our hearts so that we might walk faithfully in it. 
Martin Luther saw this passage, these verses, verses 1 through 5. He saw this as an all-out attack, an all-out assault on what he called, quote, the poisonous vice of vainglory. Vainglory is just an old fancy word for conceit. That's what you see, in fact, all the way up in verse 25 of chapter 5, don't you? We don't bite and devour one another, or rather, uh, let us not become conceited. And so he saw this as an all-out attack against the poisonous vice of vainglory. And what you're going to see here in verse 1 is Paul making a call. Specifically, it's a call to restore. Did you see that? That if anyone is caught in any transgression, well, then you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That word restore, in the way that it would have been used in Greek culture, it's just a medical term. It's a word that would have been used for the resetting of a bone. If you have a broken bone, how are you going to reset it so that it heals properly? Well, you're going to do it gently. You're going to do it slowly. You're going to splint it. It's not going to be without pain. It's not going to be without discomfort. But it's always with the goal of resetting it in such a way that it properly heals. And that's the point that Paul is making here. In fact, it's the same word that's used in the Gospels in Mark chapter 4 and Matthew 1, when both Matthew and Mark recount the disciples leaving to follow Jesus and Jesus finding them not just fishing, but mending their nets. The same word that Paul uses here is the word that is used for mending. It's fixing. It's repairing. It's taking that which is broken, seeing it fixed so that it might be useful again. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He goes, you who are spiritual need to restore the one who is caught in sin. But I think too often a church's response, whenever all of a sudden sin is made known, doubt is made known, fear is made known, transgression is found out, we respond in one of two ways. Either we're just too timid. I mean, who am I to really say anything? Or if we're not responding in timidity, well, then we might respond in pride. That we grow too proud. We, we get annoyed at this person's utter stupidity. How could they do such a thing? What were they thinking? Well, both of these are responses that Paul is seeking to correct. Because spirit-led communities do spiritual restoration. That's at the very heart. It's the DNA of the church. But we don't do that well. Or, in fact, we don't do it at all. Where there is sinful pride. And that is what Paul is taking aim at. He wants in verse 25 that we would not be conceited. And that's why he follows his call in the first half of verse 1 with a caution. In the second half of verse 1, therefore he says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. What is he talking about? How is it that we would be tempted? Is he talking about that you would be tempted in the same way as this brother or sister caught in a transgression? Well, yeah, that would certainly be true. But the broader context suggests that the temptation that the church is going to face is not a temptation toward the same kind of sin, but a temptation toward pride, a temptation toward conceit, a temptation toward provoking one another or envying one another. He says, guard against it. Because when you have somebody else in your midst or a group of people in your midst that are struggling and broken in this way, oh, you're going to be tempted to pride. 
And you're going to be tempted to conceit. You're going to be tempted to look down on that person. It looks like gloating over others. The proud people are too exalted in their own hearts to bend low to carry other people's burdens. I'm not going to do it. That's just too messy. Burden bearing is a slave's task. Prideful people don't do slaves' tasks. Inflated egos hinder burden bearing. And so there can be no place for conceit or pride. He says there can be no place for any of you in this church standing on your own little temple mounts like you find in Luke 18, 11, looking down at a sinner saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That is fatal to the task of restoration. And so we can only do spiritual restoration well when we are guarding against sinful pride and conceit. We've got to put it to death. It requires a kind of humility that can only come from Christ. And so Paul's going to say here in the remainder of the passage, what are some things that we need to consider in order to guard ourselves? What are some things that we need to arm ourselves with in order to properly keep watch over our own lives in such a way that we might be able in humility to bear up under others as they and their sin make our lives really inconvenient and messy. What do we need to do? He gives us four things. In verse 2, he's going to say, you need to consider Christ. In verse 3, he's going to say, but don't be deceived. Then in verse 4, he's going to say, test your own life. And then finally in verse 5, he's going to say, look to God's judgment. Four things. Consider Christ. Don't be deceived. Test your own life. Look to God's judgment. Just look at verse 2. This is where he starts. We're talking about keeping watch over ourselves, lest we too become tempted. Verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens. And so, when you do, you fulfill the law of Christ. It's the only place in the New Testament where this phrase, the law of Christ, is used. There are some who suggest that the law of Christ is a new law for the new covenant, and that's not right. There are others who say that, well, the law of, the, law of Christ is really just a relaxing of the law. It's not all of those commands. It's really just two more simple commands. Well, it's not the relaxing of the law at all. Well, then if it's not either one of those, if it's not a new law and it's not the relaxing of the law, then what is it? The law of Christ for believers is essentially a transformed and strengthened relationship to God's law in Christ. It totally changes our fundamental relationship. God's moral law revealed in the garden, expounded upon in the Mosaic law, that God's moral law was fulfilled and exemplified by Christ. And this law isn't now written on tablets of stone, but it's written on the hearts of born-again believers. And that is done by the Holy Spirit. And that very Holy Spirit now permanently indwells believers in such a way that he empowers us to obey God's law just as Christ obeyed God's law. 
That when we talk about the law of Christ, what we're saying is that Christ in us is able to do what all of the ordinances and all of the rules of the Mosaic law couldn't do. That is that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, if you notice, that's how Paul summarizes the law up in chapter 5. Verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, implied in that is love for God. Horizontal love for neighbor cannot be done without vertical love for God being established, and that can't be established apart from a supernatural work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. It is supernaturally brought about. And so he says, when we do this, we fulfill the law of Christ. That at the heart of burden bearing is the law of Christ. And at the heart of the law of Christ is sacrificially laying down your life for others. Mark 10.45, this is the example that we see in Jesus, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Jesus Christ, quote, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That word bore and bore our sins, same word that Paul's using here with bear one another's burdens. He has borne our burdens on the cross. Of course, Peter seems to be drawing from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 4 and following, that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It's the same language that Paul's using here when he talks about bearing one another's burdens. It's bearing up and it's carrying one another. Now, I need to be really clear on something. Because the call to imitate Christ is not a call to be Christ. Brother, sister, listen to me. If you are looking to the church to be your savior, to be the ultimate source of your comfort and of your transformation, the church will let you down. Christ alone can be the only object of your hope and faith and trust when it comes to those things. And yet at the same time, even if the church isn't being called to be Christ in a redemptive way, in a vicarious way that is laying down our life for one another so that God would be able to forgive us our sins. That's what Christ did. It is saying that the church should be like Christ in these things, specifically in the attitude of Christ. That the same attitude that drove the very Son of God to be humiliated and obedient to the point of death is the same attitude that drives us to not consider ourselves more important than others, but rather not merely looking after our own interests, looking after the interests of others. Why? Well, Paul says, because that's Christ's attitude. That we wouldn't come to be served, we would come to serve. And the moment that you put yourself in a position to serve, life gets messy, life gets inconvenient, life gets hard. I'm a parent of four kids, ages three, almost three to 11. And it's really easy to see interruptions for my kids as being obstacles to my job to my calling of what I'm supposed to do. And I have to remember that those obstacles and those interruptions, that that is my job. That that's where I enter into. And that if I'm going to be one that serves my wife, if I'm going to be one that serves my kids, 
If I'm going to be one that comes under them and behind them to support them and love them, then that means that it's just going to get messy. If you don't want your life to be messy, then don't put yourself in a posture to serve others in their greatest weaknesses and pain. Of course, if you don't want to serve others in those, then I don't really know what you mean when you call yourself a Christian. Because that is exactly the attitude that Christ is calling us to. That's how we fulfill the law of Christ. And so because Jesus Christ is the supreme burden bearer, we bear one another's burdens. But we're too often tempted, aren't we, to forget the ways in which Christ has borne our burdens. We too often peel our our eyes away from his cross. And when we lose sight of the cross, then we forget who we really are. And that's why Paul warns in verse 3, don't deceive yourself. He says this, read along with me. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Here he's talking about thinking that we're something that we're really not. Having a wrong estimation of yourself. That I'm not really a sinner. I'm not that needy. I'm not that weak. I'm not that reliant on grace. I'm really much more self-sufficient, self-righteous, self-reliant. C.S. Lewis says this is the great sin. He says, quote, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, that is this conceit that thinks too highly of ourselves, the more that we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. You understand what he's saying? That you know that you are growing conceited when you hate conceit in others more and more and more. We're always rankled in others, what we see in ourselves. We're always much harder on others than we are on ourselves when we are self-deceived. David says it this way in Psalm 36, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. In other words, he has taken his eyes off of God, off of his law, and as such cannot rightly understand who he is, and he is utterly deceived. He thinks he's something other than what he is. And this is what sin does, doesn't it? It speaks to us. It flatters us. It convinces us that we're less than sinful, that we're less than conceited, that we're less than self-centered. It convinces us that we're more patient, more faithful, more gracious than we really are. Well, this kind of pride and conceit, this kind of self-deception, Paul's going to say, it is absolutely fatal for burden-bearing because it turns us into judges rather than burden-bearers. It turns us into those who step up onto our self-righteous pedestals looking down at others, waiting for them to pick themselves up to our level rather than stooping down lower than them to help raise them up, carry them, and bear their burdens. If you're one who is hesitant or reluctant or refuses altogether to enter into the muck and the mire of other people's lives as they battle sin in their life, then it may very well be the case that you are self-deceived. You think you're something other than what you are and that you need something or that you don't need what you really need, and that is a total reliance on the grace of God. And so we are want to guard against self-deception. How do we do that, though? How do we guard against self-deception? Well, one way is to confess often. 
It's just to be honest with our mouths as often as we can that we are who God's word says we are and that we need what God's word says we need. That we are sinners who are irremediably not separated from God, but alienated from God because of our sin and apart from the, from the free grace of God in Christ, justifying us, not by works of the law, but by faith alone. Apart from that, then we are continue to be alienated from God. That we are who we are because of God's grace. And to function in our relationships with others as if anything but that is true is to completely misunderstand the gospel. It's to go back to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, that if righteousness came by works of the law, then Christ died for no reason. It's to function in life of the church like the cross doesn't mean anything. How many churches function that way? Well, that's what conceit will do. It renders the cross powerless, unnecessary. This is what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, if anyone would like to acquire humility... I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and that's a big step, too, because it's hard to do. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. And C.S. Lewis is right. That's why, thirdly, we need to, in verse 4, test our own life. Not just guard against being self-deceived, but verse 4, we need to test our own life. He says, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Nobody likes that know-it-all in school. Perhaps you were that know-it-all. You know, the one who is not only concerned with their own grades, but is concerned with the grades of everybody else. Constantly concerned with how you measure up against others. Perhaps pointing out the flaws or correcting Always saying, yeah, but, whenever there's somebody making a point about something. Nobody likes the know-it-all in school. But that's how pride works. That know-it-alls are those who grade everyone else's work. That we become preoccupied with how we're doing in relation to others around us. That becomes our measuring stick for faithfulness. I'm doing a little bit better than them. I'm reading my Bible a little bit more often than they are. I'm coming to church more often than they are. I'm showing up to way more things in the church than they are. None of those things make you more or less righteous before God. And yet we're we're so prone and tempted to think that way, aren't we? And when we do, we exalt ourselves over others. That conceit leads us to be hard on others, but really easy on ourselves. That we become strict when we grade others, uh, but we always like to grade our own lives on a curve, don't we? We want mercy, but conceited people, at least when we're trapped in our own conceit, we struggle to give it. But what do we need to do in order to test our own lives? What we see here, the first thing that we need to do is not to grade our lives on a curve, but to grade it according to the law of Christ. It's not to compare ourselves to others. It's to compare ourselves to Christ. It's to going, how does my life, my attitude, my priorities, the way that I spend my time, the way that I spend my money, the way that I engage weak and weary Sinners, in the way that I respond to those who constantly interrupt me, if you read through the Gospels, what you find is Jesus' ministry was just one continuous interruption, one big mess with people, 
Is my attitude and responses in those situations the same as Jesus? Or does it look altogether different? Do I avoid people? Oh, there goes that person's so needy. I think I'm going to take the long way around. Christ never took the long way around. He was always interfacing, touching those who hadn't been touched, speaking to those who had never been spoken to, taking those who were far off and bringing them near. You realize that's the very heart of hospitality. Four times in the New Testament, we are commanded to be hospitable. At the heart of hospitality is taking those who are far off and alienated and bringing them near that they might belong. That's the heart of hospitality. And that's the heart of Christ. Is that what you look like? Well, that's our measure. And in every way we fail to measure up, we run to the cross as fast as we can, and we praise God for his righteousness, not our own, and we plead for him to make us more like him. God, give, help me to love what you love. Help me to hate what you hate. Conform my will to your will. Conform my affections to Christ's affections that I might love you more, and I might, as a consequence, love others more. This is really hard to do. Because life in a church with a bunch of people who are very different than you, in very different seasons of life than you, that sin very differently than you do, is really messy and hard and inconvenient and takes time and it takes work and it takes lots and lots of supernatural gospel grace. This is what makes the church utterly unique, I think. You want to be able to ask the question, what makes this community such that it can only be explained by the resurrection of a man from the dead. You can't say that about Kiwanis. You can't say that about American Legion. You can't say that about any other organization in the entire world. You go, what is it that makes these kind of people willing to sacrifice themselves and their time and their money and their comfort and anything and everything for the gospel's sake in one another's lives? And the only answer is, because we worship a Christ who was once dead and is now alive. And he is still in the business right now of taking dead people and making them alive. And he is still the good physician who is taking those who are sick and making them well. And we are fully engaged in that work. That's what makes the church utterly unique. To, to do otherwise, to be a church in any other way, is to, be a, is to be like a doctor who loves building hospitals but hates sick people. And I fear too many of our churches are like that. That we want to love sick and weary people. That we long to be inconvenienced. That we long to enter into the mess because that is to tread where Jesus went. And that's where we go. And so how do we do that? One last thing. That we also look to God's judgment. Verse 5. Look at this. For each will have to bear his own load. Martin Luther said these words are forceful enough to frighten us so thoroughly that we would not yearn for vainglory, that is conceit. That nothing guards us against the present temptation to deceive ourselves like the future certainty of standing before the majesty of Christ to give an account for your life. One commentator put it this way, it's not hard to feel spiritually spiffy when we measure ourselves against others. 
But when we envision our sinful little selves before the one from whom even earth and sky will flee away, grandiose ideas about who we are or what we've done will themselves flee away. And that's right. That if looking toward God's judgment, of standing before Christ in his glory at his judgment seat, if that isn't a regular part of your discipleship as you meet with one another, one-on-one in small groups, in your homes, if looking forward to God's judgment and anticipation isn't a regular part of your discipleship, then your discipleship is deficient. It is a necessary aspect of growing in godliness. Well, you say, doesn't the Bible say there's no condemnation for those in Christ? Well, yeah, absolutely it does. But the the Bible also says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, you say, wait a minute. I thought we were justified by faith alone. Isn't that what Paul's been preaching all along in Galatians? Yes, but justifying faith is never alone. That there will come a day where we will stand before Christ and on that day he will separate sheep from goats, wheat from chaff, and it will be your life evidencing whether or not Christ is indeed in you. Has it just been an empty confession? Has it just been songs that you've sung? Has it just been recitations that you've given in your life in the church? There will be a lot of men and women with really good theology who are really faithful to attend church who will be in hell because their life was not ultimately transformed by the gospel. There is an error out there right now and has been for some time that you can take Jesus as your savior, but not as your Lord. It's called a higher life theology. Some of you grew up in churches that went something like this. There's a difference between believers and there's a difference between Christians. Believers are those who believe in the gospel, though they evidence no new life And yet they will still escape judgment one day simply because of their belief in the gospel. And then there's Christians, on the other hand, those who have not only believed in the gospel but are seeking to conform their lives to Christ. So therefore, be a Christian, not a believer. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. That is a rank heresy and a false error. And it grants a whole fleet of non-Christians false assurance that they are in fact Christians when they're not. That the Christian life is not intellectual assent to a set of propositions about the gospel. It's not memorizing a bunch of songs or a bunch of liturgies. It's not even showing up to church every week. It is a life that is wholly, utterly given over to Christ in such a way that through the power of the Spirit, it's being transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. Never perfectly in this life, but in such a way that when you stand before Christ, he goes, your life has been mine. Remember What a number of people said, they came to him and they said, look at all the things that we've done for you in your name. We've been really active in Jesus' name. And he says, listen, I don't even know who you are. Flee from me, depart from me. Friend, listen to me. If you are here today, you have to know this. Sincerity is not enough. Merely being sincere about the things you believe is not enough. That what we are looking for in the Christian life is credibility. That it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And that's evidenced chiefly in the way that we fulfill the law of Christ, that is love for one another. And so if there comes a day where we stand before Christ 
and he says, you have not loved my church. And you go, yeah, but I believe the gospel. They go, I don't even know who you are. Here in the Bible Belt South, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, here in the Bible Belt South, this just grieves me to no end is that there are men and women, perhaps even some in this room right now, that have been sold a lie that because they prayed a prayer or they threw a stick in the fire at summer camp once upon a time that they are that they have their hell insurance, that they're going to get through scot-free, that is not what we find in the New Testament. It is confessing with your mouth Christ as Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords. It is to be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. But to be transferred in the kingdom of the beloved Son is to be one who submits himself to the King. And none of that is done in our own power. That is all done by God's grace. But that grace is evident in our lives. And so we look forward not with, not with fear but of reverence. And we go, we want to make sure that when we stand in that day together, that we've done everything that we can to love, encourage, and guard one another in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would get through this life, through that judgment, and safely home to Jesus together. that we would be those who would be found to have fruit exhibiting the fact that we abide in Christ. And so part of what you see in Galatians 6 is the motivation to go, let's go, we're gonna lock arms together. We're gonna get into the messiness of our lives together. We're gonna put sin to death together. We're gonna encourage godliness in one another's lives together. We're gonna do it by the means that God has provided, his word, the gathering of his people, the preaching and the singing and the praying of his word. We're gonna commit ourselves to these things in such a way that the life of Christ would begin to exhibit itself in our lives and that we would grow in assurance and confidence that Christ is in fact ours and that we are his. That's the whole goal here. This isn't a higher life theology. There's not varsity and junior varsity Christians. There are true Christians and there are false Christians. There are those who have put their faith and trust in Christ and are aiming by God's grace to conform their lives to his will as expressed in his word. And there are those who confess and couldn't give a rip about following Jesus because they've got their hell insurance. There are true Christians and there are false Christians. This has been the plague of the Bible Belt is Christian nominalism, Christian in name only, but no imperative to submit to Christ as Lord. So let me wrap up in conclusion. Just some practical questions for burden bearing. I'm gonna give three, and we're gonna look back at our text. Number one, who should bear burdens? Who should bear burdens? Well, we see in verse one, it is those who are spiritual. What Paul is doing here is not breaking up two classes of Christians, those who are spiritual and those who are not. He's saying those who are spiritual are those who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That was the whole point of the passage preceding this. Walk by the Spirit, that you would desire the things of the Spirit, that you would be led by the Spirit, that you would live by the Spirit. Right? So he's talking to the church, those who have been indwelt by the Spirit. It's been given to them as a gift by faith in the gospel. We've been united to Christ. We have his Spirit. His Spirit is at work in our lives, and we're conforming our lives to him. That's who he's talking about. So he's talking to every born-again believer. He's not talking to a subset in the church. And he's not talking specifically to pastors. 
He's not saying, listen, if anyone's caught in any transgression, then the pastors need to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He's saying this is a whole church effort. This is a responsibility that belongs to every believer, not just the pastors in the church. So over the last couple of months, as we've been preaching through the fruit of the Spirit, there have been things that have been come up in our lives. We pray often that God would do His work through His Spirit, through His Word in the life of His people here in this church. And when He does, in a Hebrews 4 sense, God's Word is exposing and revealing, and that is exactly what He's done. And there's been hard conversations that have had to happen in this church over the last few months as a result and a response to the preaching of the Word, of God's Word exposing and there's been times where it's been messy in a number one of your lives. And there's been, there's been shame and guilt and those kinds of things that have come along with it. And we've had to enter into one another's lives in that way. But let me just tell you, there, there's a sense in which an area that we're beginning to grow in grace as a church but need to continue to grow in grace as a church is that the first and only stop for brothers and sisters when the word of God reveals sin in their lives is not the pastors. It's one another. It's bear one another's burdens. It's to serve one another. It's to restore one another. This isn't pastoral ministry. This is local church ministry. This is y'all's ministry. And it's a ministry that the elders of this church are committed to equipping you for. And it's one that we enter into with you because we're members of this church. But it's not a ministry that belongs solely to the pastors. If the pastors are the only ones in the mess of the members' lives, then there is a breakdown in the discipleship of that church. So brothers and sisters, let's continue to grow in grace as we who are spiritual seek to enter into one another's lives in such a way that we can bear one another up. That we who are strong, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Of course, those who are spiritual are those who require a degree of maturity. Luther says, burden-bearing requires that a Christian have broad shoulders and husky bones. Why does he say that? Because burden-bearing is heavy. It takes a lot of effort. It's not easy. The burdens of our brothers and sisters are heavy. It's not for the weak. It's not for the half-hearted. It's not for those who enter in and then punt after a couple weeks when it gets tough. It's going, I don't care how hard and messy this is going to get. We're in the trenches together. We're going to bear one another's burdens. But when should we do it? Second question, when should we bear burdens? Notice here, when anyone is caught in any transgression. That word transgression is any sin of a serious nature. You can look up at verses 19 to 21. Here we have those whose lives are exhibiting the works of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. And when those evidence themselves among our members, well, then we jump to action. Exhorting them, rebuking them where necessary, and where there's sorrow, confession, repentance, we seek patiently to restore them. And so anywhere we see transgression, we bear the burdens that come from sin in one another's lives. But then finally, how should we bear burdens? How should we bear burdens? You see that at the end of verse 1? that we bear burdens in a spirit of gentleness. If you remember from our study in the fruit of the spirit, gentleness is human power brought under God's control. I think this exhortation is especially important for those who have been wounded by others in the church. 
who have been hurt or disappointed for those who have in some way experienced church burn. The exhortation of gentleness is here because we're not naturally gentle. We need to be exhorted, especially when we're offended. Because if you're anything like me when you're offended, your first inclination may be like James and John when they were offended by the Samaritans and they turned to Jesus and said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Paul says that's not how we respond. We respond in gentleness. And this is what we see exemplified in Matthew chapter 18. Many of you are familiar with it. It's the passage that's speaking about corrective church discipline in the life of the church, that there's multiple steps. If a brother's caused an offense, then that brother who's been offended goes to him in private, tells him his offense, and tries to win his brother. And if he will not listen, he takes others with him as witnesses, and they sit down privately with him, and they try to, they try to have this conversation and attempt to win their brother and show him his sin. And if he will not, after that, you take it to the church, and you have the church speak. And if he will not listen to the church, well, then you put him out of the church because... He loves his sin more than he loves his Savior. But what you see in Matthew 18 is a deliberately slow and patient and gentle process. And I think one of the mistakes that we make when we look at a, at a passage like Matthew 18 dealing with church discipline is we think that that only happens in exceptional cases. But the reality is, is that that step of when one is offended, go to that brother in private, tell him his offense and seek to win your brother, that is just regular Christian discipleship. That is where the church lives. That's not exceptional, that's normative. To go to one another in gentleness, to go, you hurt me, or your sin has caused pain in others, or this is what I'm seeing in your life. And for that person to go, oh, you're right, I see that, I'm so sorry. And for that person to confess their sin to God and be restored gently, that Paul, that the Bible is always concerned with gentleness. That this isn't abnormal. Paul wants you to know that this isn't abnormal. This isn't an obstacle to ministry in the church. This is one of the primary ministries of the church. This is normal Christianity 101. It's to be in one another's lives like that. I don't know how many of you have been in churches like this. And this is a spiritual reality that to be clear, will not be perfected in this church, in this life. But it's one that we aim to approximate by God's grace. It's one that can only be done in the power of the gospel. It's one that can only be done by those who have new life in Christ. And that new life in Christ, as we'll see exhibited in the Lord's Supper right now, is a new life that can only come by receiving his mercy, receiving his righteousness by faith alone not by what you've done. So if you're here, listen, if you are here visiting and you're not a Christian, or perhaps you're one of those who's thrown a stick in a fire and you've prayed a prayer once upon a time, but you examine your life and you go, man, that doesn't look anything like Jesus. And friend, it is never too late to turn to Christ in faith. Christ who has far more mercy than you have sin and to throw all of yourself on him so that he might become your righteousness the full forgiveness of your sins, that he might become your sanctification, that is, the source of your transformed life, and that you might come into a community that would exhibit Christ's very embodied love for you as we seek to bear one another's burdens. Let's pray together and take the Lord's Supper and be reminded of the unity that we enjoy in Jesus.